Our scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, we pray that you would uh, you'd help us to personify the very things that Paul has said here. Pray that you'd be with Tom, that you'd help him and you'd help us to really grasp this text and to see it as a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Well, uh, we have reached the end of our study of First and Second Corinthians this morning. The reason I'm not going to be doing a, a separate review of the book after we consider this final passage is because this passage is a great launch pad for a review, and, and we'll do that this morning. It captures the heart and essence of very much of what Paul has been setting for us throughout this marvelous letter. Uh, so it's, it's both a concluding exhortation and a great summation of, of the letter, in many ways of both of Paul's letters. We'll refer some today uh, also to 1 Corinthians. My intent this morning is not certainly not to review every important teaching and exhortation that we've seen in 2 Corinthians. That would take way too long. <laughs> uh, it is instead to revisit just a few of the most vital lessons of the letter, that, uh, especially the ones that clearly tie to these concluding exhortations that Paul gives us. If we can accomplish that much, then I believe it will help us sear into our hearts how God intends to use every one of us to make His church powerfully useful in the world. Paul begins verse 11 with the words, Finally, brethren. The word brethren identifies one last time the audience to whom Paul has addressed every word of both of these letters. In the very first verse of this, of this epistle, Paul declared that he was writing, quote, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. The region known as Achaia is mostly what we would today call Greece. But the fact that Paul intended not to limit the circulation of either of these letters to just one local church in one city is abundantly evident in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, where he identifies his target audience in this way. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now that's, as we finish this up, that's important information for us to walk away with, especially since there are, there are many so-called Bible scholars today who constrain the application of many of Paul's teachings and exhortations to one particular place and one particular time in history. God is speaking to every saint 
in every age, through every word, of every passage, of every one of Paul's letters, and in fact, every one of the New Testament epistles. Historical context often enhances our understanding of a passage, but it must never limit our submission to any passage that God has addressed to his church. The word finally marks this as the conclusion and culmination of this great letter. Here at the end of 2 Corinthians, the first of Paul's concluding exhortations is to the saints is rejoice, rejoice. I think we all have a pretty good kind of intrinsic idea of what, the, what it means to rejoice. It means to take joy in something, to be gladdened in your heart in the innermost man or woman. It can also mean to express that joy verbally. Rejoice out loud, if you will. And because of the consistent focus on body life uh, throughout this letter, I have no doubt that it means both uh, to Paul in this, in this context. Both to be gladdened, to, to be joyful, and to, to give voice to that joy. In the Bible, godly joy is inseparable from gratitude, from thankfulness to God. Uh, the child of God does not rejoice in a vacuum. He doesn't rejoice just because he or she feels good. The child of God is joyful because he knows who God is and what God has done for him. Two passages that always come to my mind every time I see a command in the Bible to rejoice are 1 Thessalonians 5 and Philippians 4. Uh, I learned both of these as a very young Christian 100 years ago. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. And then he says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Philippians 4, 4 through 6. Since I came out of, out of the darkness into the light, as at that time in my life, I was a nervous, depressed, fearful wreck. And God changed that for me dramatically. I went from, from being on Stelazine, a high powered tranquilizer, as a teenager to never having to take any such thing again for the rest of my life. Up to this point, praise God. It doesn't work that way for everyone. I get that. But what I'm saying is this had, when I was, when I was 16 and 17 years old and came to faith, this passage rocked my world. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God has been doing that for me every day since I got saved. 
Notice the connection in both of those marvelous passages between rejoicing, equipping, thanksgiving, and peace. Rejoicing, equipping, thanksgiving, and peace. I've heard many Christians say that they want to know what God's will for their lives is. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the bedrock of God's answer to that question for every child of His. Rejoicing is the wellspring from which all of the rest of what God wills for you will come. Let me say that again. Rejoicing is the wellspring from which all the rest of what God wills for you will come. Joy that proceeds from gratitude to God, thankfulness to God, is the fountain of all practical holiness. And that's why the command to rejoice belongs exactly where it is in this passage. Front and center. The joy of the Lord proceeding from a heart that is thankful to the Lord is the anchor for all of the remaining exhortations that Paul sets before us here in this concluding in these concluding verses. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. First, be made complete. The most common Greek word translated to complete or to perfect is not the word that's used here. Freeberg's lexicon says that the basic meaning of the word that is used here, listen to this, is to thoroughly prepare something to meet demands. To make ready. I love that. It can also carry the connotation of restoring something to readiness. In Galatians 6 verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That's the word. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's also the same word that is translated mend in Matthew 4.21 when Jesus came upon three fishermen, James and John and their father Zebedee, and they were mending their nets. Those nets were the tools of their trade, the instruments of their trade. Torn nets don't catch fish. They're useless. So they mended the nets in order to restore them to usefulness. The most concise definition that I can come up with based on how Paul and the other New Testament writers use this, this word is it means to equip or to restore in order to make useful. To equip or to restore in order to make useful. Every time Paul uses this word, there's also a very strong interpersonal, relational element in the completing or preparing that's going on. The completeness that Paul's talking about here happens in the context of body life, not apart from body life. I want to repeat that because there's no way, no way we can rightly understand this exhortation or even this epistle if we don't get this. The completeness that Paul is talking about, that God seeks in us, happens in the context of body life, not apart from body life. It's one of the reasons that internet church won't cut it. 
The body of Christ is the object of, the, of this preparation or completing. In other words, it is that which is ultimately being completed, being prepared. God completes the body parts in order to complete the body. But at the same time, other body parts are the instruments of that preparation or completing of each individual part so that the whole is made complete. God is the source of this gracious work. The body, the church, is the ultimate object or target of this gracious work. And we, the members of the body, are among the most powerfully useful instruments that God employs to accomplish this gracious work, to prepare, to make ready, to restore his spiritual household to the level of usefulness that he intends. Here's something else we surely must not miss. Paul is ending his two canonical letters, First and Second Corinthians, the letters to these saints, exactly, exactly where he started them. I'm going to read a few verses from the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And as I read them, please listen carefully for the same vital truths that we now find in the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. It's bookends. Here's Paul's first exhortation and first rebuke in 1 Corinthians. Now I exhort you, brethren, this is chapter 1, verse 10, 1 Corinthians. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, that, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he goes on to a rebuke. And he says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of, one, each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, that's Peter, and I of Christ. And then he says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, in the last chapter of Paul's last letter to these same saints, he says, first in verse 9, we rejoice, we rejoice, when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong, this we also pray for, that you may be made complete. There's that phrase again. Be made complete. And then just two verses later, in our passage this morning, his request of God moves to an exhortation to the brethren. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. So at the beginning of 1 Corinthians and at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul exhorts the church to be made complete, be made complete. And in both of those contexts, he also exhorts the saints to be one, to forsake divisions, to be like-minded, to live in peace with God and with one another. Now, Paul does not say, make yourselves complete. He does not say, make the church complete. He says, be made complete. 
What kind of verb do we call that? Passive. Passive. It's not something that we make happen. It's something that happens to us. And everything between 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us that the one who makes it happen, the one who completes us, is God. And that doesn't mean we have no responsibility in the matter. This is very much like another passive exhortation that we're, most of us are familiar with from Ephesians chapter 6. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't fill ourselves with the Spirit. He fills us with himself. But a vessel cannot be filled with two things at once, can it? It can be mixed, but it can't be filled with two things at the same time. And God's not big on those kind of mixtures. So we have a responsibility to get rid of the other stuff in order to get ourselves out of God's way. Now this does not mean that we control or limit God in any way. Quite the opposite. It means God demands something of us before He will do what He has promised. That's typical of a whole lot of the Christian life. The reason that, that, that you and I don't have many of the things that we would like to have is because God withholds until we agree with Him and submit to Him. That's not us controlling God, that's God controlling us. God completes the saints so that all of us will be instruments that He uses to complete the body. At the same time, God uses our fellow saints as instruments to complete us. And he uses us to complete our fellow saints. Isn't this great? The essence of our responsibility, beloved, is to get ourselves out of God's way. How do we do that? By not tearing down what he is building up. And that applies at both the individual and the corporate levels. Both in your heart and in Christ's church. In order for the body of Christ to be mightily used by God in the world, the body parts must be devoted to building each other up, not to tearing each other down. That reciprocity is what binds these remaining four exhortations as well as the first one, together like the links of an unbroken chain. By reciprocity, I mean it works in both directions that God uses us to build up our brothers and sisters and he uses our brothers and sisters to build up us. Okay, here are the, here are the, the five links. Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. There is no such thing as a church that rejoices, that is complete, that is comforted, that is like-minded, and that is at peace, that is also filled with strife and division between its members. And this is why Paul has placed such a great priority on defending his own ministry and that of his co-workers throughout this letter. 
Not because, God, because Paul cares about the approval of men. Not at all. He said in Galatians 1, if, if I'm trying to please men, I'm no longer serving Christ. A community of saints in which the members of the community are warring against their God-appointed leaders and biting and devouring each other is a community of saints that is working against God, not with God. Now let's get back to the positive side of these final exhortations. If it is God who makes us complete and not we ourselves, then where must our focus be? Not a rhetorical question. Let me ask it again. If it is God who makes us complete and not we ourselves, then where must our focus be? Absolutely on Him. Remember that thing in Hebrews chapter 12? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes. Our greatest responsibility when it comes to being filled is being dependent. Prayerful, continual, absolute dependence. That's the heart of our assignment. One of the things that makes this epistle so eminently practical and why it has had such a profound impact in my own life and ministry is because at every turn, it connects what God expects from us with what God is doing and has done in us and for us. Let me say that again. At every turn, this great epistle connects what God expects from us with what God has done in us and for us and with what He is doing in us and for us. Those things are completely inseparable. What God expects and what God has done. And that turns out, out to be wonderful cause for rejoicing. We rejoice, beloved, because we've been given the greatest job in the world. And because every single part of our ability to do, to do that job has already been promised to us and given to us by the one who alone makes us able to do the assignment. Can you imagine having a really difficult job and never lacking anything at all to do it exactly the way it should be done. That's what God promises. We have God's unfailing promise that He is all the resource we will ever have and He is all the resource we will ever need. Do you believe that, beloved? God is all the resource that you and I will ever have and He's all the resource you and I will ever, ever need. That's marvelous. This is one of the most repeated and most prominent and most powerful truths that Paul sets before us in this great letter. We've talked about it many times during this study. In chapter 2, Paul said, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. 
the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him. We get, to, we get to bear that knowledge to this world. Everywhere. All the time. In chapter 3, he said, And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In chapter 4, he said, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what we bear. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You and me. That's what we bear. And then he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. In order that the surpassing greatness of the power may clearly be of God and not from ourselves. We've talked about this so many times in this book. It's a prerequisite that you be weak and that I be weak in order to be mightily used by God. And if we're not weak or we think we're not weak, what's God going to do? He's going to weaken us. That's gracious, beloved. It's gracious and, and it explains so very much of what we experience in our lives as the children of God. If we're not as weak as we need to be for God to be the only one whose glory and might and worth is displayed through us, then He's going to see to it that we become weaker for His glory and for our good. That's what you call counterintuitive. It's also what you call divine genius. My series title for this study has been The Power and Glory of Christ in Jars of Clay. The Power and Glory of Christ in Jars of Clay. I've enjoyed this journey through these two letters immensely. The fragile jars of clay are us, you and I, and every individual saint. The treasure we bear in these jars is the light, of the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the one who makes such fragile and otherwise valueless vessels able to bear such a magnificent treasure is the same one who fills those vessels with himself. This is deeply personal to God. Your usefulness to God is deeply personal to God. It is never at your expense. It is for your great blessing that God makes you useful. An indispensable corollary to this truth about the power and the glory of God in vessels of clay is that the body of Christ, which is the primary object or target of our assignment is also among the primary instruments that God uses to fully equip us for that assignment. And that's that reciprocity thing again. I want to make sure that my wording here doesn't confuse anyone, so let me restate this in different words. God calls you and me to act as His instruments to complete our fellow saints so that we will all be instruments useful to complete His church. 
While he's doing all that, he's also completing you and me through our fellow saints. So he's completing us, and he's completing us through each other in both directions all the time. Isn't that great? The church we're called to build up is one of the indispensable instruments through which God builds us up and equips us to build his church up. It's just great. Imagine you, you just went out and bought a new car and it came with a full tank of gas, but as you drove it, the engine produced more fuel, more fuel and better fuel, higher octane fuel than it came with in the tank originally. And it produced so much more and better fuel that all your neighbors started coming to you to fuel their cars. The reality here is far greater than that. Far greater. Every day of your life as a child of God, God is giving you all that you need to be mightily used to bless and to build up His church, the bride of Christ. And the whole time that He's doing that, He's using other members of the church to bless you and build you up so you can keep doing that marvelous work. That is cause for much rejoicing. The deep and heartfelt longing of Paul for the completeness of Christ's church, for the full preparation, training, and sufficiency of the church to carry on its mission in the world is not a separate matter from his longing to see the church live in loving unity and peace instead of constantly struggling with the kinds of petty divisions that had hamstrung the church in Corinth so much of the time. They're the very same struggles and conflicts that every church wrestles with and that this church wrestles with. Godly unity, the godly unity and peace that proceeds from love for God and for each other is indispensable to building up, equipping, and when necessary, restoring every saint to usefulness. And the result is a church miraculously useful to God. Again, all this ties these concluding exhortations of Paul together inseparably. And what does God promise will happen if the saints heed the exhortations? Well, well, through Paul, God assures us that, quote, the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love and peace will be with you. The God who requires love and peace from you <laughs> is the God of love and peace. And he's with you. What a magnificent promise. When we live in love and peace toward one another, the God in whom love and peace have their one and only source blesses and magnifies and inhabits our efforts to display His character in our dealings with one another. God wants you to know this with very great certainty. Everything that you do to lovingly build up your brothers and sisters and to build up Christ's church, everything that you do to nurture unity instead of division, everything that you do to be of like mind with those who have received God's word, 
whether that thing that you do seems like a small thing or a big thing, is inhabited and blessed and magnified by the all-powerful, all-sovereign God of love and peace. When Paul says the God of love and peace will be with you, he doesn't mean God will sit on the sidelines cheering for you. He means God will actively place opportunities in your path while His Spirit continually empowers you, encourages you, and blesses your words and your actions. You are not ever in this alone. You are not ever left to your own power, your own devices, your own talents. The one who perfects and equips you for the work he has assigned is the one who saved you. I want to, before I move on to the last part of this, I want to say one quick thing about like-mindedness. A lot of Christians don't understand the commands to be like-minded. Biblical like-mindedness certainly does not mean that we agree on everything. What it means is that we major in the things upon which all Christians, by definition, agree. You with me? Being like-minded means we quit worrying about the things that divide us because when you get right down to us, if we're believers, those things really don't transform us. What transforms us are the things that we have in common. I'll just quickly point you to one passage, one verse that I think is marvelous. Listen to this. Philippians 1.27 Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what is it that unites us? The faith of the gospel. It's not everything that we know. It's the faith of the gospel. You know that, that message, that, that marvelous message of forgiveness and reconciliation to God that a six-year-old can understand and believe? That's what unites us, beloved. Let's major on that. All right. Be comforted. Paul began this very personal letter with a prompt, and, and I know it feels like I'm just getting started. I'm not. I brought a lot of this passage already in, so, but I want to focus on a couple of things. Paul began this personal letter, with very personal letter, with a promise of, of a powerful comfort that belongs only to God's people and proceeds only from God. The promise, that promise reveals to us something really, really important about how we are to treat each other. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves also are comforted for, by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. You see the reciprocity going on here? You see that God comforts us so we can comfort each other with the comfort that we received from Him? 
The God that we worship, adore, and obey is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The word comfort is often translated encouragement, many times as exhortation. Those two meanings should be seen as one. This is not a touchy-feely kind of encouragement or comfort. It is in-courage-ment. It's purposeful. It equips. It makes courageous. It corrects courses. It prepares. It restores. Unlike what the world calls comfort, it does not accomplish its goal when the person receiving it has been made to feel good. Even in the hardest of circumstances. This comfort accomplishes its goal when the person receiving it has been built up and fortified to be useful in accomplishing what matters to God. This understanding puts the exhortation to be comforted in exactly the same toolbox as the exhortation to be made complete. Both are passive. God is the one who accomplishes the action. Both are goal-oriented with God's priorities defining the goal. And both are by definition relational. They happen in the world of body life, in the realm of body life. If you take other people out of the equation, these commands, be made complete and be comforted, have no context and they have no substance. If you take the members of the church out of community with one another as a way of life, these commands have no context, no substance. In chapter 7 of this letter, Paul talked about a time when he personally was the recipient of this very same kind of comfort that he's talking about in the first and last chapters of this letter. In chapter 7, verses 4 through 7, he said, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he, Titus was comforted in you. As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Guys, do you see how relational this is? How personal this is? Does that sound like chapter 1? All those recurrences of the word comfort? Yeah, absolutely. And this applies not only to our spiritual service to one another, it also applies to our material service to one another. It applies to what we do with the money that God puts into our hands. We certainly will not get this letter right if we miss the fact that money is used in the body of Christ as an instrument of this God-sourced comfort. That's what chapters 8 and 9 are about. People say they're about giving. Beloved, they're about building up the body of Christ by using money. God comforting and completing his church through the money that he puts in the hands of every individual saint. And God intends every individual saint to have a role in this. 
whether whether it looks small or large, the widow's mite was a fortune, according to Jesus. Paul exhorts the saints in Corinth to honor the commitment they had made a year earlier to participate in, quote, God's gracious work. Not man's gracious work, God's gracious work. A financial gift being gathered in all the churches to build up and encourage the heavily persecuted and impoverished saints in the city of Jerusalem who were Jews that had become Christians. And these are Gentiles, mostly, that had become Christians. Now these Gentile churches were getting the opportunity to be part of the same gracious work of God just like we get to do today. Uh, In the remaining exhortations of this chapter, Paul instructs the saints to be like-minded and to live in peace. We've already talked about this some. Then, then of course, there's everyone's favorite. Greet one another with a holy handshake. If you want to delight the one who sent his son to die in your place to make you his own, delight yourself in his people. Love your brothers and sisters well. Love them as you have been loved by Christ. All of them. In all places. At all times. Give yourself up for them as Christ gave Himself up for you. Forgive. Restore. Exhort. Encourage. And open your hands to share all that God puts in your hands with those whom He has lovingly made your brothers and sisters for all eternity. For all eternity. (laughs) We're going to get to know each other really well. Give yourself up for them as Christ gave Himself up for you. And then Paul says, all the saints greet you. As you care for the saints everywhere, the saints everywhere are praying for you and caring for you. And they're also watching what you do. (laughs) What the Corinthian saints did was going to be seen by all the saints in all the other local churches. And that's important to remember. What you and I do, and whether or not we do it together in peace and with one mind as God intends, will be visible to God's people in many other places and it will impact the reputation of the church everywhere. God is watching and His church is watching, so let's get this right. Paul concludes this wonderful epistle with a very Trinitarian benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There's no question that Paul declares Jesus to be God. The word Lord, kurios, is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament word Lord, Adonai, which is everywhere in the Old Testament ascribed to Yahweh, the one true God. A variant of that word Adonai is used to translate the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Every time Paul speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is calling Jesus God. 
when Paul is speaking of the persons of the Trinity in the same context together, he avoids confusion by using the word God to refer to the Father, the word Lord to refer to the Son, and the word Spirit to refer to the Holy Spirit. You see this countless times in Paul's letters. It's very, very consistent. Did everybody get that? You need to know that. Can't tell you how many liberal scholars have said Jesus can't be God if Paul talks about God and Jesus as if they're two different persons. The Lord Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ, God. You got it? It's important. Paul's last words in his last letter to the saints in and around Corinth and to all saints everywhere are the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What I love about benedictions in the Bible is that they aren't wishes, they're promises. These are the things that God absolutely delights in doing for his redeemed ones. We can count on these things. The grace of the one in whose eyes we were once dead forever has made us alive with Christ forever. The love of the one who, who loved rebels and enemies and sinners like you and me with such an astonishing love that he sent his only son to die in our place, <laughs> that love is with us always. And the fellowship of the one who is the down payment of our eternal inheritance in God, the one whose presence binds us all, all of our hearts together as the one people of the living God, the one who has already sealed us and keeps us safe for the day when we will very soon enter into perfect and unhindered fellowship with our triune God, that one is always, always with us and in us, the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, it is now and forever well with our eternal souls because of this one true God who is always with us. Let's enjoy him. Let's glorify him together with each other, with every breath that we breathe until he puts the curse behind us once and for all and we dwell with him in the place he has prepared for us, arm in arm for all eternity. Loving Father, how can we thank you for the faithfulness that you created in your faithful vessel, the Apostle Paul, <laughs> that, who's still blessing us by that faithfulness. How can we thank you for the rock-solid certainty that you make us mightily useful in the lives of each other and of the lost? How can we thank you for giving us the greatest job in the world and giving us absolutely everything that we need to do it? How can we thank you for giving us to each other? Father, we pray that our thanks will go far beyond our prayers to lives laid down for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his incomparable name. Amen.